Today's scripture reading, uh, which you can find in your bulletins, comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. And as it's being read, you can follow along. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of, the, of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You know, this is March, and I think one of the the wonderful things as we approach the Easter season, just from a, I don't know, mental health kind of perspective, is uh, we we start to move out of the brutal months of winter, and we prepare for really a time of refreshment when nice spring weather comes. I think people's moods get a lot better. Uh, But, you know, spiritually speaking, this is also the season of Lent, and what I thought we would do in the month of March as we lead to Good Friday and Uh, the Easter holiday, uh, I want to look at a just very short series looking at the cross. And what that basically means is I want to explore the meaning of Jesus' death, why he died, and the way I want to do this is I want to go through uh, a series looking at what I'm going to call the shadows of the cross. Uh, By that I mean we're going to look at the cross through the lens of the Old Testament. Now if you're familiar with the Christian story, then Jesus' death upon a cross is probably not going to be shocking to you or a big surprise to you. But if you are uh, anybody else, if you're not familiar with the Christian story, if you didn't grow up in a church, then, you know, the celebration of the cross, if you think about it, is a little bit strange, right? Uh, Christians celebrate basically a, a symbol, which is an instrument of a horrific and gruesome death. And in some ways, it, it just doesn't seem to make sense. You know, I've even heard some people say this, that if it's true that God would save the world by allowing his only son to be crucified on a cross, then how can God be good? That's just tantamount to a cosmic form of child abuse. And you know, people, if you uh, talk to people and perhaps some people here, you think about the cross and uh, you just kind of look at it from a fresh perspective, a lot of it is strange and a lot of it doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. But, you know, it's not just, I think, modern people who have a hard time uh, understanding or comprehending the meaning of the cross, but ancient people had a hard time with it as well. 
Jewish people, uh, they were offended by the cross and they considered the message of the cross to be a message of blasphemy. Uh, Gentiles or non-Jews in the ancient world, they looked at the cross and they said, the cross is foolish. The message of the cross is foolish. And you see, in spite of its poor reception by a variety of people, and perhaps for many of us at one point in our lives, us as well, the cross is so important because it, it essentially lies at the center of the meaning of the Christian faith. In other words, if you want to understand Christianity, you have to be able to understand the cross. You know, one author puts it this way. She says, The crucifixion is the touchstone of Christian authenticity, the unique feature by which everything else, including the resurrection, is given its true significance. The cross is central, important, touchstone of Christian authenticity. And so as I said before, I want to look at the cross, but I want to look at it through its shadows in the Old Testament. Now, you think about, by the way, that word shadows, that phrase shadows, it's, uh, it's not something I made up, but it actually comes from the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews, it's, which is a book in the New Testament, uh, when he talks about things in the Old Testament, he refers to them as shadows. You don't see the full and the true form, but you do see hints of it. And when Jesus Christ comes, then you begin to see its fullness. You know, you think about a shadow, uh, you can tell maybe the general form of something, Uh, based on the shadow, you can say, oh, that's a shadow of a human being, or oh, that's a shadow of a building, or oh, that's a shadow of of an animal. Uh, But you can't tell the fullness of something just by looking at a shadow, and the only way you can see it is if that object is fully revealed to us. Now, when Jesus comes, that's kind of that transition where he reveals to us the fullness or the, the, uh, the clarity of what the Old Testament is essentially hinting at, But the reason I want to look at the hints or the shadows in the Old Testament as we look at the cross is because I think that's one of the ways we kind of understand the multidimensionality of the meaning of the cross because it's not just one simple meaning, but you have all of these different themes and all these different biblical motifs running through the strands of the Old Testament and you see them wonderfully weave together and beautifully climax in the death of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to start today by looking at Exodus chapter 12, which... uh, which is a passage about the Passover. And if you know anything about the Passover, you know to this day the Passover is an important holiday for Jewish peoples, and Jewish people continue to observe it today. If you have any devout Jewish friends or if you work with any devout Jewish people, uh, you should ask them what, what they do over Passover because it really is quite interesting. Uh, they have a Passover Seder, and uh, I think usually, you know, I haven't been to one uh, myself personally, but from what I read, usually... What they would do is they have four glasses of wine, and in the course of uh, the meal, which is kind of like a, a service in a sense, uh, you drink the four glasses of wine, you eat some matzah, uh, you eat some bitter herbs, you read some scripture, you sing some songs, and one of the things that they do is they're trying to recount the story of the Exodus. They're recounting God's deliverance, where God brought his people out of slavery and freed them. And if you read through the Exodus from the beginning, it's, it's actually a really interesting story. It's, it's quite a compelling drama, and uh, I suspect that's why Hollywood has made many movies, not about the end of Exodus, but really <laughs> focus on the beginning of Exodus, because it is a great story. You know, the people of God, they are enslaved to Egypt. God uses Moses, a very unlikely leader who grew up in the house of Pharaoh, to deliver the people of Israel from slavery. 
And the way that God would do it is very compelling as well. He would bring 10 different plagues to the people of Egypt in a way to try to, uh, I don't know if convince is the right word, but to make Pharaoh release his people. And Pharaoh, throughout the entire time, throughout the first nine plagues, says, I will not let them go, and he remains stubborn and steadfast. But it's not until this final plague where Pharaoh would relent and allow the people of Israel to go free. And in this final plague, I think for a modern uh, audience, it would be quite shocking what God says he would do. But God says he will strike down all the firstborn of the land, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of livestock. And that is the way that God would ultimately bring deliverance to the people of Israel. During Passover, you know, one of the things uh, that Jewish people do as they partake in a Passover Seder is uh, they lie down, they're reclining, and they're lying down on their left side as they eat and drink. And the reason that they would lie down and recline is because that is something free people do. So they're expressing their freedom as they lie down and as they partake in this Passover meal because that is essentially the message of Exodus. Freedom, liberation. That's what Passover is ultimately about. God would bring freedom. Now, we we live in a country that values and cherishes freedom. Uh, Many of us probably have not experienced what it's like to be a slave, to live in bondage. Freedom is, and therefore freedom might be something that we take for granted if we haven't truly experienced what it's like to be enslaved. But if you think about it, looking at throughout history, freedom is always an occasion to celebrate. Uh, In the United States, we celebrate Independence Day, as a way to commemorate our independence from Britain. But we even celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a way to remember what Martin Luther King achieved through the civil rights movement. And, you know, at least um, connected to the African-American experience, you know, the story of the Exodus has functioned in uh, powerful ways because there are so many parallels between uh, an experience of feeling oppressed to the experience of the Israelites. I want to give you an example of this because I think it's a very powerful and fascinating story, but there's a story about a civil rights march that would take place in Birmingham, Alabama, 1964. And uh, I get this story from a book by Andrew Young. Uh, He wrote a book called An Easy Burden, which is about the civil rights movement in America. And let me set the context a little bit. Think about this. It is Easter Sunday. Martin Luther King, he's arrested and he's in jail. So they plan a march. They go to church, have their worship service and their Easter celebration, and after service, what their plan is to do is to start at New Pilgrim Baptist Church and to march all the way to the city jail. And as they march, they're walking through, and all of a sudden they see police, They see fire trucks, fire engines. They see firemen holding hoses, ready to hose them down and blocking their path. And this is is 5,000 marchers. They're marching together in unison, going to this city jail. And here's how Andrew Young records what happens next. I'm going to read it verbatim because he writes it better than I could ever explain it. He says this, Wyatt Walker and I were leading the march. I can't say we knew what to do. I know I didn't want to turn the march around. I asked the people to get down on their knees and offer a prayer. Suddenly, Reverend Charles Billups, one of the most faithful and fearless leaders of the old Alabama Christian movement for human rights, jumped up and hollered, The Lord is with this movement. Off your knees. We're going on. Stunned at first, Bull Connor yelled, Stop him. Stop him. But none of the police moved a muscle. 
Even the police dogs that had been growling and straining at their leashes were now perfectly calm. I saw one fireman, tears in his eyes, just let the hose drop at his feet. Our people marched right between the red fire trucks singing, I want Jesus to walk with me. Bull Connor's policemen had refused to arrest us. His firemen had refused to hose us, and his dogs had refused to bite us. It was quite a moment to witness. I'll never forget one old woman who became ecstatic when she marched through the barricades. As she passed through, she shouted, Great God Almighty done parted the Red Sea one more time. Uh, You see the connection between that experience and how the Exodus story really parallels and relates to an experience of feeling oppressed and feeling enslaved. You know, this is a great story because it's a story filled with tension. It's a story filled with drama. It's a story filled with God's favor. And when you experience God's favor upon you, when you are experiencing so much oppression and you experience that taste of freedom or liberation, that is a reason to celebrate not only in that moment, but for generations and generations and generations to come. And you see, that's what the Passover was to the Jewish people. You know, slavery, it's a miserable experience. There is no life. There is no joy. There is no security. Freedom is something that we all need because it gives us life. It gives us joy. It gives us security. And when you experience that deliverance, it is as if you have been given a new life, a second life. And again, that's what Passover communicates. By the way, you do see the hints of it in verse 2 because Passover signals the beginning of the calendar, the beginning of a new year for the people of Israel, and that's a way of communicating newness, new life. Now, when you get to the New Testament, slavery is uh, used as a metaphor to understand the consequences of our sin. The New Testament writers speak of uh, sin as something that enslaves us. So, for example, Jesus, he's in the synagogue in Luke 4. He uh, unravels the, from the prophet Isaiah, and he reads this. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you see, when Jesus comes, you know, that passage actually has a double meaning because on the one hand, it means a liberation from a foreign authority or a foreign power, but also it has a spiritual meaning in that moment in that Jesus is saying he has come to bring liberation from the power of the devil and from the power of sin and from the power of death. The Apostle Paul picks up on that language in Romans 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. You know, the message of the cross, and this is what we're trying to explore today as we look at this Passover passage, the message of the cross on one level, it's, it's about freedom, friends. It's about great deliverance. It is about how God looked upon us and saw us enslaved to something, saw that thing that enslaved us taking away our life, taking away our joy, and saying, I want to bring freedom and deliverance. That ultimately happens on the cross, but the Passover story is a shadow, an anticipation of how Jesus would do that on the cross. So now let's, let's look at this passage and um, by the way, you know, this is not the start of the sermon, so uh, I'm going to be brief, so don't worry. It's not going to be super long. But as we look at this passage, how does God deliver freedom to the people of Israel? Let's look at two elements. 
First, we want to look at the firstborn, and second, we want to look at the blood. Now, if we want to understand what's going on here, we, we have to understand the meaning of the firstborn. You see, when God threatens to strike down all the firstborn, Again, our, our reaction is going to be, what? Why would God do that? That, that sounds horrific. That sounds terrible. And, uh, you know, it, what's interesting is that that conception is going to be more offensive to modern ears than ancient people. You know, ancient people, uh, one of the things that they uh, understood was the first of anything, whether it's the first fruits of a harvest, whether it is the firstborn of a family, the first of anything ultimately belongs to God because the first of anything represents everything else. So if you're willing to give your first, essentially that's a reflection of a heart that says everything that I have belongs to you. So that's the mentality there. You know, in the next chapter, God would say to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So God is essentially claiming the firstborn of anything is mine. And what does that mean? That means this, that the firstborn has to be redeemed. And God would give an opportunity for that to happen. So later on in Exodus, God gives more instructions and he's in terms of how to redeem the firstborn. And the redemption of that firstborn would come by way of a substitute. I want to give you an example of this here. You know, there is a, a story in Genesis. It's a, it's a well-known story, but uh, God tells uh, Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And if you know the context of that story, you know, his wife Sarah was barren for many, many years, and they finally gave birth to Isaac in their old age. And, you know, this is a story that I think troubles a lot of people. Uh, I, th- I, know, I think Kierkegaard, a uh, philosopher, wrote a book about uh, this story and kind of reflections about the story. But uh, it, what's interesting about the story is that the one person who should have been troubled by what God said, uh, there's, there's no evidence that Abraham himself was really troubled. God says, you know, sacrifice your son Isaac. So Abraham does what God asks. He brings Isaac up the mountain along with materials to build an altar sacrifice. And you ask, why wouldn't Abraham object to this? And I think it's because he understands a few things. First, he understands Isaac ultimately belongs to God. Second, he's a man of great faith. And he believes in God's promise because God said, look at, look at the sky. Look how many stars there are. As numerous as the stars are, that is how many uh, offspring you will have. So God made that promise to Abraham. I think he believes it. And finally, I think Abraham knew that God would ultimately provide a substitute to take the place of Isaac. And you read that story, the text actually hints at it because Isaac says, you know, poor Isaac, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's like, where is where's the sacrifice for the burnt offering? And Abraham's response is this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. I think there's a hint that, God knew, that Abraham knew God is going to provide a lamb. God is going to provide a substitute. You see, God claims a firstborn, but then he offers a substitute as a way to redeem the firstborn. He did it for Abraham, and he does it for the people of Israel, which, by the way, earlier on in Exodus, God calls Israel his firstborn. God does it for Israel as well here in the Passover. And this leads to our second element, the blood. God says to them, Take a lamb without blemish and kill it. Take the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts. And then he says this in verse 13. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, the blood was important. The blood on the doorposts were important because it signified something important in that God would see the blood and he would pass judgment over that particular house. Now notice what blood, the use of blood means. It means that God isn't passing over a certain house because one is an Egyptian and one is an Israelite. God isn't passing judgment because he's saying, oh, this household is morally better than the other household. You see, in one sense, there is no real distinction between anybody because everybody falls short and everybody, uh, nobody could come before God and say, God, spare your judgment from me because I have lived an absolutely perfect life and I have kept your standards. Nobody could have done that, even enslaved Israel. And so the only thing that would bring a uh, Passover judgment would be this blood that would be painted upon the doorposts. You see, in that sense, we we see that everybody is essentially in the same boat. Everybody's in the same boat with respect to our status before God. You see, the blood tells us that God only passes judgment because there was a substitute that was killed in their place. You know, that's why if you say, and this is something that I often hear when uh, I talk to people who may be, you know, familiar with Christianity but uh, not in the church and not super familiar with Christianity, they'll say this, you know, Christianity is about being a good moral person. Um, some people will even say, oh, yeah, I should get, I should get back to church, um, right, so I can be a good person. Uh, if that's the way you think, then you don't really understand the core of Christianity because... Christianity says this, nobody is good. Not one person is good. Everybody has fallen short. Everybody needs a substitute to take our place and to redeem us. And what is the substitute here? Well, in the Passover meal, it was a lamb. But you see in the final analysis, how can the blood of a lamb serve as a true and sufficient substitute for our rebellion and our sin against God? It can't. And in order to therefore deal with the depths of our hearts that are so self-centered, that are so idolatrous, that are so rebellious against God's ways, that are so willing to assert our own personal authority over God's authority and live according to how we want to live, the only lamb that could serve as a substitute for that kind of heart is Jesus Christ. In a moment, Uh, You see the table here. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, when Jesus institutes this meal, you know what holiday it was? It was the Passover, right? That's when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And Jesus tells his disciples to prepare the Passover meal. And as the meal begins, Jesus begins to speak. And a good Jewish person who has been celebrating the Passover, they would kind of be used to the process. They would be like, oh, okay, I know what's going on next. I know what the person who's leading the meal is going to say next. And Jesus speaks. And they would have expected Jesus to take the bread and to say something like this. This is the bread of our affliction, of our ancestors' affliction. Remember how our ancestors suffered. But Jesus doesn't say that. Rather, he takes the bread. He breaks it. He gives thanks, gives it to the disciples, and he says, take, eat. This is my body, 
This is my body. In other words, this is the bread of my affliction. Takes a cup of wine. And usually what would happen, you would recite a blessing or you would retell the story of the Passover lamb in Exodus. But Jesus doesn't do that either. He takes this cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. What is Jesus doing in this meal? He is, in a sense, redefining the true meaning of Passover. He is saying that the Passover meal is not ultimately about what God did for the people of Israel. The Passover meal is about me. It's about me. You see, notice that there is something in this Passover meal that is clearly prescribed in the passage that we read in uh, Exodus 12, but we don't find in any of the accounts of when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. You know what's missing in that meal? There's no lamb. There's no mention of any lamb. Why? Because the lamb is already at the table. During this meal, Jesus is saying this, I am the lamb. I am that substitute. I am the one who would be afflicted. I am the one whose blood would be poured out for many so that God would pass judgment over you. I am that firstborn of all creation whose life would be taken, whose life would be claimed so that you might be redeemed. I am the means by which you will experience a new and a better exodus. Your liberation will be cosmic in scope and you will be delivered from the power of sin and death because I am the one who is going to go to the cross. I am the Passover lamb. You see, friends, that that is the true meaning of this Passover meal that we read in Exodus 12. It is a shadow of what is to come, this true and full and ultimate reality about the deliverance of God for all people, for you and me. And if this is something that we believe, if this is something we know, it should, I think, do something to us. First, I think it should give us a kind of joy that only an experience of true freedom can give. I know many people uh, feel maybe trapped in a variety of ways. We still feel a little bit enslaved. Some of us live We have this constant guilt that hangs over our shoulders or hangs over our heads because of something that we did in the past or because of something that we didn't do in the past and we live with this huge regret and we're just being crushed by the weight of guilt. I think a lot of people, uh, especially maybe in our community, uh, we live with a sense of shame, meaning we live with a sense of unworthiness that uh, we are being crushed by all the time that our life didn't turn out the way that we thought it was going to turn out, that we have experienced different kinds of failures, that our careers haven't panned out the way that we thought it was going to pan out, that we don't make as much money as we thought we were going to make, that our relationship status is not where we thought it was going to be. All of these things we feel enslaved to, and guess what? It sucks the life out of us. If you believe in the Passover lamb, that Jesus is the Passover lamb who liberates us, who gives us true deliverance and who gives us true freedom. You know what should happen? The crushing weight of our guilt and the crushing weight of our shame should be lifted and our lives should no longer feel heavy. You know what else this truth ought to do for us? I think it should give us a gratitude that no circumstance and no situation can dampen. 
If you ever missed a day of work or a week of work or uh, you've missed something, aren't you thankful when somebody fills in for you and substitutes for you? <laughs> you know, I know when, uh, uh, when somebody fills in for me on Sundays and preaches for me, you know, I, I feel pretty thankful. I go, oh, thanks for being the sub. Well, guess what? Jesus filled in. He was a sub for something far greater than anything we have experienced. And therefore, shouldn't our gratitude be far more than what we experience when somebody else subs for us? You know, if this doesn't generate gratitude in our hearts, I really don't know what in the world will. The fact that Jesus was our substitute lamb. And the last thing I want to say before we come to the table, I think this truth also, it should give us a heart that says, there is no amount of love or sacrifice that I can give that will be close to that which I have received. In other words, there is this debt of love that we feel like we need to pay, but one that is impossible to pay, so much so that no matter what we do and how much we give and how much we sacrifice, we'll always feel like it is not enough. And therefore, I think that's an important uh, part in in forming our hearts, that we don't love with limits, that we don't love when we say, I'll love you until uh, it becomes uncomfortable, or I'll sacrifice until I don't want to sacrifice anymore, or I'll give what I can give. I've given you X amount of times. uh, I think I've given you enough. You see, that kind of mentality, which I think is a kind of love that uh, most of us or most of the world operates on, doesn't exist. And our love becomes without limits. And we say, I will love and love and serve and serve and sacrifice and sacrifice because of what Jesus Christ has given and sacrificed to me. You know, by the way, I think it also means this. um, You know, we, we have no real right to be angry at God And I I know many of us, we've probably expressed that at some point in our lives. And that usually happens when we're going through hard seasons. And I can certainly understand why we would feel that way. And it would feel like, why did God uh, do this to me? Why did God withhold this from me? But think about it this way also. You know, if Jesus really offered up his life to you as a Passover lamb, he has already given you everything. Everything. And you see, when we are going through these difficult seasons in life and we're so focused on what God has withheld from us, you know what it does? It takes our focus on what God has ultimately given us, which is far better than getting that which was withheld from us. There are so many applications, I think, or implications, I I should say, about this meal and about this Passover meal and about the deliverance that God has given us upon the cross. But the one thing that we need to do in life is to focus on this meal. Jesus, he is our Passover lamb. Friends, remember him. Receive him. Rejoice in him. For as John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he has come. He has come. Let's pray together.